Hello, I'm Jeffrey Mishlove, and I'd like to talk today about the psychology of enlightenment. Enlightenment means many different things to many different people. Uh, in the yoga tradition, in the tradition of Hinduism, enlightenment means achieving total bliss, total union with God complete awareness of everything at once. You could call it cosmic consciousness, but it's a sustained awareness. One becomes, as an enlightened being, a, an avatar, a representative of the highest deity here on earth. Not just a, a, a representative is not even strong enough a word, but a, an exemplar, a uh, part of God. In the Buddhist tradition, enlightenment is a bit different than the Hindu because uh, the ideal of Buddhism is nirvana, which is, you might say, the, almost the opposite of the Hindu version, and yet somehow the same nothingness, pure nothingness, pure indifference. The Buddha said, it doesn't matter if I'm alive or dead. I'm indifferent to that. I'm detached. And detachment is often spoken of in the Hindu tradition as, as well. So uh, it gets very confusing. And scholars have debated about this for aeons, for millennia. There are, you know, a thousand books about enlightenment. What is it really? Well, the Freudians viewed it as a regression to a infantile state, people who claim one with everything, unity with God, total bliss, or even total detachment were thought of as, as simply regressing to a state where they're back in the womb or maybe just born and suckling at their mother's breast. It was not considered an advanced state until the work of the great psychologist Abraham Maslow Maslow began studying the most creative people of his era, Einstein, uh, Eleanor Roosevelt, Helen Keller. He began looking at their accomplishments to find out, you know, how is it in the Western context that people of great accomplishment achieved their um, vision, or as he would say, actualized themselves, actualized themselves. And he discovered in interviewing these people that they all reported what he called peak experiences. And furthermore, these peak experiences were pretty much indistinguishable from the experiences reported by the great yogis and mystics of our culture. The cosmic consciousness, a sense of oneness, a total sense of unity, of purpose, of commitment of doing things in the world and uh, knowing with great certainty from the depths of your being that you're doing the right thing. Many people report uh, states of enlightenment that hit them quite suddenly. Uh, for a long time, I studied the teachings of a man known as Mayor Baba, who was considered by his followers and still is an avatar in sort of a Sufi Hindu kind of milieu. He was actually, I, I think, Persian. But in any case, he became enlightened one day when he was passing by a, a, a guru, a Sufi master, and the Sufi master grabbed a stone and threw it at him and hit him smack right in the forehead. And boom, he was enlightened from that moment on. He knew himself to be an avatar, a god 
on earth in his view. And other people, uh, there was a very popular leader of the human potential movement and growth groups back in the 1970s and 1980s who called himself Werner Erhard. And he claimed to have achieved a state of cosmic consciousness while flying his airplane. Once he had a small airplane and he's flying along in the clouds and all of a sudden it dawned on him, boom, pop, and he was enlightened. Yet, one can find in so many of these stories of the great gurus and the great teachers that they often have what are called feet of clay. They may be enlightened in some regards, but in other regards they are very, very human, all too human one might say, and particularly we're talking about sexual peccadilloes or financial uh, misbehavior. So I think it's fair to say you can be enlightened in some respects and not enlightened in others. Take the Buddha, for example. Historically, I think all followers of traditions that speak of enlightenment would hold Gautama Buddha in high regard. And yet there is a story told, uh, as I recall, by his cousin who was his scribe, Ananda. Uh, and it happened one day, uh, and these are believed to be true stories uh, from the direct witnesses involved. Ananda reported that there were monks in, in the Buddhist order. That's what they were. They were monks. And, but there were many women followers and who were not allowed to become monks in the early days of the Buddhist uh, Sangha or community. And Ananda told them, the, the women are complaining. Can't, can't they also become monks? And the Buddha said, all right, we'll set up an order for Buddhist female monks. He said, but it's a real shame because if we had only had male monks, our Buddhist community would last a thousand years. But now that we're taking in females, our community will only last 500 years or so. Now we know, over 2,000 years later, he was wrong on all counts. So was he enlightened in every single respect? Of course not. And that's how I view enlightenment. I guess. It's, it's sort of, you have to look at it uh, bit by bit, aspect by aspect, compartment by compartment. And the human psyche has many different compartments, many different mansions exist within my father's house, you might say. Well, I'm Jewish, as I pointed out in the previous segment quite extensively. And there's a tradition in Judaism that one can never see the face of God, let alone merge with God and live. The human body just can't tolerate it. And Moses, the greatest of all the Hebrew prophets traditionally, but not in my book, um, Moses apparently, according to legend, saw the face of God right before he died. And that suggests that those who claim absolute ultimate God-like status. Well, from a Jewish perspective, there's every reason to be skeptical. Every reason to be skeptical. And there have been some in Judaism uh, who claim to be a Messiah-like figure. It usually ended very badly. And uh, there are many, many examples of people who 
claim to have achieved that kind of height of enlightenment. And uh, as the old saying goes, uh, pride goeth before the fall. So those whom the gods would destroy, they first fill with pride. Now, what about you? Where do you think you are most enlightened and where not? In the Western uh, sense, in the 18th century, we call that the age of enlightenment. And what is meant by that is if, if you're enlightened in the Western sense, you're a rational person, you understand Newtonian physics, you uh, don't believe in the divine right of kings, you believe in democracy, you believe in universal education. That's a sense of enlightenment. Uh, for feminists, enlightenment means that you understand how you've been raised in a patriarchal society that disparages women and denies them equal rights. If you're oppressed in any sense, if you belong to a minority group that is oppressed by your oppressors, throwing off the ideology of your oppressors and recognizing yourself as a whole human being Sufficient unto yourself is a form of enlightenment. Abraham Maslow, in his book, Toward a Psychology of Being, distinguished between the psychology of being, the psychology of wholeness, where you're self-contained and in a positive way because you contribute to the lives of others rather than being dependent, and especially rather than having what the Freudian Karen Horney called neurotic needs, things you think you need, but really you don't. That's uh, the example of neurosis. And, and yet one can find <laughs> what, what are sometimes called spiritual bypasses, people who can live in an ashram or a spiritual community. And it seems as if they're perfectly enlightened, but then when they get out into the real world for one reason or another, the psychological issues that they never ad addressed properly come up to the fore. There's so much more that could be said about enlightenment because, of course, a thousand books have been written on the subject. But uh, since I only have a few minutes, let me leave you with this thought. One day in 1985, Christmas Eve, I received a phone call from Ted Owens, the PK man, who I had been studying for about 10 years at that time, and who compared himself to Moses in terms of his great psychokinetic and prophetic powers. And he called me up and he said, Jeffrey, in his deep, booming voice, this is the most important phone call you will ever receive. And then he went on to tell me, it was up to me to warn the U.S. government not to launch the next space shuttle because the UFOs that he worked with planned to knock it out of the sky. I, of course, did nothing. But I bring the story up not to uh, talk about Ted Owens and his powers or his claims to uh, some sort of spiritual authority, but to ask you to reflect on what if you were to receive a phone call? This is the most important phone call you will ever receive. This is the phone call that will enable you to achieve a new level of enlightenment. This is a message coming to you now. What would it be? And I'll leave you with that thought. Thank you for being with me.